and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science. This week we are taking a little break from new stories, but we do have a special guest on the show. We have Spider-Man. Well, a Spider-Man. Claire is talking to Joseph Schubert about peacock spiders and a newly discovered species. Well, it was newly discovered. This is uh, a bit of an old story from the archives. And also, if you've ever wondered uh, what the answer to the old riddle, my shark's got no nose, how does he smell? We'll have to ask Claire to ask an expert. Claire is talking to Victoria Camilleri-Ash about how do sharks actually smell underwater. So please stay tuned for these archival stories from Lost in Science. love a citizen science story on Lost in Science, especially when it leads to the discovery of new species. My guest today is an arachnologist here to tell us about his latest described species of the incredibly charismatic group of spiders, the peacock spiders, with the help of citizen scientists. Joseph Schubert, arachnologist from Melbourne Museum. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Joseph, first things first, can you describe peacock spiders? Okay, so if I were to describe a peacock spider, I would like you to imagine a tiny four millimetre eight-legged kitten. Um, (laughs) They're tiny little jumping spiders, which are incredibly colourful, and they, uh, they love to dance. So these spiders perform courtship displays. The males are really colourful and they'll display their colours to females that they're trying to mate with. Did you say an eight-legged kitten? Yes, they're uh, they're really cute, I find. Um, and, yeah, they've been compared to kittens before. What do you think about them makes them so cute? Um, well, they've got these massive forward-facing eyes, which I guess makes them more relatable to arachnophobes. And they're really, really tiny, so they're, they're completely harmless and they just hop around and they're very, very curious animals. Oh, they sound adorable, like sort of like a nice entry into the world of spiders for a lot of people maybe yeah definitely um a lot of people who are arachnophobic have told me oh like i'm scared of spiders but these are actually kind of cute which i love to hear (laughs) that's great that's excellent is it only the males that have the colorful display yeah that's right so only the males are colorful and actually only when they're mature so they spend most of their lives brown in color and they go through a process called molting which is where they shed their skin and each time they shed their skin, they get a little bit bigger. And in their final molt, which is when they mature, their colours and their reproductive organs will develop. Oh, right. And are we talking like specific colours on the spectrum, like greens and and blues, like the peacock, or is it more more diverse than that? Yeah, they're massively diverse. So some are greens and blues, some are reds. Um, and in this case, we've got an orange one. So they're a massive range of colours. How common are they in Australia? Is there a good chance that, you know, I might have seen one or passed one without even knowing? Yeah, they're incredibly easily overlooked, but they're very, very common. Um, So 
in most natural habitats, they're able to be found um, on the ground usually or near the ground, usually in leaf litter or on twigs or on grass. Uh, I've actually found them in my backyard in suburban Melbourne, so they're quite common indeed. Whoa, suburban as well. Yes. <laughs> so they occupy a lot of different places. Yeah, that's right, and in a variety of habitats too. So they range from coastal habitats to um, to the deserts, and then in this case with this new species to an ephemeral swampland, which is really amazing. Okay, so um, you've alluded to a new species a couple of times. I'm very excited to talk to you about that. Can you tell us a bit about this new species um, that's just been published? Yeah, so uh, this new species is an orange and white-faced Cute little peacock spider, which I've decided to call Maratus Nemo, <laughs> named after the clownfish. And this species was actually discovered by a citizen scientist who um, was doing some ecological field work. She's actually professional with plants, but um, she happened to be taking photos of jumping spiders because she's interested in them as well and um, posted them on a Facebook group. I came across her post and thought, wow, that looks like a new species. And here we are. This is the first time this particular Nemo spider has ever been described? Yeah, so I, I'd never even seen photographs of it before, which is uh, really amazing. And it seems to occupy quite a short range in a very particular type of habitat. So it's, um, it's unsurprising that no one's really uh, looked very closely at that type of habitat before for these jumping spiders. And, yeah, it's, it's really amazing that she was the first one to photograph it and um, post wow. it. Wow. Do you have to go out into that habitat and find other um, specimens of that particular peacock spider to verify that it's a new species? What's that, what's that process like? Yeah, so typically I would go out into the field and um, collect specimens myself, but Cheryl, who found it, was actually kind enough to collect me some specimens, um, which I, I was able to then examine in the lab, which was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you think it's only localized to the place where Cheryl found it or um, what are your thoughts around you know how it's distributed? Uh, well it's difficult to say so it, it probably could occupy a, a larger range than we currently know. Um, there are some species which we only know to only knew to occur in Western Australia that we now know occur in Victoria so um, ranges can be massively extended um, so it's just a matter of looking more to find out. And I understand that the process of naming a new species is not an easy one. Has this been a long, has this been a long time coming? Uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite a few months in the making. So she collected the specimens in November last year and the paper was only just published a few days ago. So quite a long time. Joseph, how, do you, how important do you think citizen science is in describing and um, protecting biodiversity? I think it's massively important. Um, realistically, the scientists who specialise on groups like these can't be everywhere at once. Um, so to have thousands of pairs of eyes looking for new species is incredibly helpful. And also a lot of the time we're stuck in the lab and don't get to do as much field work as we like. So um, having more people out there looking is really, really good. And how would you recommend people get involved with citizen science projects? 
Well, I think just getting out there and um, taking photographs of interesting looking critters and recording the locality data and uploading them to websites like uh, iNaturalist or onto Facebook groups, um, I think that's a very, very helpful first step. Um, and then if you have found something interesting, we can use the photographs and the locality data to expand further on a potential discovery. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear, you know, you as an arachnologist are scouring the, the Facebook pages for, you know, new photos of things. Would that be a common sort of thing to, for scientists across the board and biologists across the board to be doing? Yeah, it's definitely becoming a lot more common. Um, I have seen a number of uh, professional taxonomists on a number of these different Facebook groups, um, even for different taxonomic groups, not just spiders. Um, so yeah, people are definitely using social media to science's advantage. That is a outcome of social media that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it can be used for good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so Joseph, um, how many peacock spiders in Australia have been described? Uh, with this edition, it makes it 92 species, so quite a few. That's, that's, a, that's a massive amount. Um, do you think there are more out there? Uh, I, I'm quite sure there would be. Um, so 77 or 78 or so of these 92 species have been described and discovered in the last 10 years alone. So it, it would be completely unsurprising for more to be out there. Uh, in fact, I've definitely seen photographs of what are likely some undis undocumented species uh, on various platforms like iNaturalist and on social media. So it's just a matter of getting out there and collecting specimens for scientists to do the taxonomic work on them. You're a peacock spider detective. <laughs> you've, got a, <laughs> you've got a couple of leads in the field. That, that's what it feels like sometimes, doing a bit of detective work, and I think that's what makes it uh, really fun. Speaking of field work and having fun, can you? Are there any hilarious stories from the field or um, working with peacock spiders? Probably one of my most memorable stories in the field was uh, working with a mentor of mine uh, named Barbara Bear. She's she's amazing. She's described hundreds and hundreds of species, um, and we were we were out together, and I was putting a wolf spider into a jar, and it it ran up my arm, and I. <laughs> I honestly, I freaked out and I screamed and I flicked it off me and um, she was laughing at me and she was like, oh, I thought you were a, a brave arachnologist, Joseph, what's going on here? And anyway, um, we had our laugh and then a few minutes later, the exact same thing happened to her, it ran up her arm and she let out a big scream and then I was like, ha, huh, there we go, Barbara, who's laughing now? <laughs> That is excellent to know. I'm sure, you know, our listeners around Australia will be very happy to know that even arachnologists get freaked out when spiders ramp your arm. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm a little bit of an arachnophobe, but I still, I still love them all and appreciate them. <laughs> excellent. Well, Joseph, a big thank you for coming on Lost in Science today and sharing your spidery stories. Congratulations to you and Cheryl on um, the new species, Maritus Nemo if I got that right. That's right, yep. Yes. Um, and best of luck with the hunt for new species of peacock spider. Hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on. See you soon.
It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So I can't remember when I first heard that sharks could smell one drop of blood in a whole beach, but it certainly had me thinking twice about swimming in the oceans with cuts or abrasions. But what does science really know about shark smell and how it works? Are shark noses really as sensitive as we think? Well, our guest on Lost in Science this week is very qualified to give us an answer to confirm or deny my childhood facts. Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash is a fish biologist and postdoctoral research fellow at Queensland University of Technology. Victoria, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire, for having me. So, Victoria, do sharks smell as well as we think? That's the very question and then you start my PhD. Um, so the main thing, I guess, to consider is when you assess um, an animal's ability to detect some signals, let's say olfactory cues in our case, mm-hmm. you can assess it looking at how the olfactory system is organized. That's morphology. You can right. assess it looking at how it functions and that's, physiology right or you can look at how the behavioral outputs are displayed and that's more ethology so animal behavioral research and now you can add another layer actually that i forgot is uh, molecular biology you can look at the genetics side of things so depending on how many genes are expressed to actually do that task you can also assess it this way when I started my PhD research, I was interested in the holistic answer, right? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes or no? Yeah. I know, I know. That's, um, but when you dig down and you look at what's been done, what remains to be done, you kind of come up with an answer which is still in the gray area. Mm. Bluntly, there is no yes or no answers as just yet. It just depends on what you look at. So if yeah. you look at the genetics... For instance, like for fun facts, um, humans have roughly 800 olfactory genes, primates 600, um, mice 1,400. Wow. Um, rats even a bit more than that. Dogs um, 1,100, so a bit less. Uh, cows 2,000. Cows? Yes. So, oh. so far they're topping it. All the fish, roughly 300 and something. Okay. And sharks, you go down to sharks, elephant sharks or other sharks, about 50 to 60 genes. So if you look at just the genetics, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of genetic information expressing receptors mm. able, you know, to collect that in kind of information. But then when you look at the brain and the size of the olfactory bulbs compared to the, well, relative to the overall brain size, then sharks have quite big olfactory bulbs. So the brain area used to process that kind of signals, so odors, um, is relatively large compared to other animals. So that's another way to look at it, so morphology. Right, so that's, that's in morphology. You've got your genetics yeah. and then Once, you've got, yeah, your physiology as well. So in terms of physiology, for instance, the story is a bit different. Um, the sharks can have detection thresholds, so the minimum amount of chemical that can be detected quite low so one part in a billion for instance for some of the Amazing. chemicals out there like amino acids are some of them anyway 
Um, so research showed that um, bony fishes are able to detect as low detection threshold for pheromones, for instance, as mm. feeding cues for sharks. So for sharks, we don't know uh, for the pheromones how low uh, that detection threshold might be. Um, that's a research happening right now by a good colleague of mine um, at EQ. So we're going to find out probably soon. The question is not out there yet. So if you want to look into this, um, my good friend Heather Mid- Middleton is looking at this at UQ and she's probably going to share that story when it's, when it's out there. Okay, so it sounds like shark smell is a lot more complicated than we thought, but um, they do have that morphological, that sort of like enlarged parts of the brain, um, even though they might not have as many genes as other different animals. So when you went into your PhD, what was your question and what, what were your sort of like research questions about shark smell? Yeah. So based on um, the recap you just did, um, I guess the, the main thing that we, we I stumbled upon and I, I really wanted to get down to knowing more about that was the morphology aspect. We seem to have done quite a lot of research on um, behavioral responses or physiological responses of some chemicals, but not necessarily how the system itself, the wiring to the brain or in within the brain was organized compared to other animals, which can answer one bit of the question, if you like, and hasn't been questioned yet as much um so that's the very question i, I tackled and I, I wish i had time to tackle more and i didn't in the end so I, I stuck to anatomy pretty much um and i guess with shark anatomy you need um to go and have a look at some sharks and look at their brains so take, it, take us through um how you went about that That's a very good point, actually. So working on these animals is not necessarily easy because, yeah, you need to access some samples uh, of them uh, in nature. So I was lucky, you know, because I chose a lab, the neuroecology group, which was led by um, Professor Sean Cullen at UWA. When I started, um, he had a huge collection of, um, of shark samples in his lab, amongst other animals, um, being a sensory biology lab. And so my other co-supervisor, Dr. Karyopak, uh, or Professor Shark Brain, if you want to call her this way. Professor Shark Brain. Yes, she's out there. She's <laughs> that based is um, excellent. in North Carolina uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington now. But she was at EWA as well when I started, and she had a huge collection of shark brains over there. So I guess she was the best way to start just um, working from sample off the shelves instead of yeah, going out there and, and um, having to apply for permits and euthanize more animals, that, that was needed. And the actual sort of lab work that you then did, the comparative anatomy, or take us through what some of your experiments were like. Yeah, so going for anatomy is one thing, but then what questions exactly? So um, there is a, a, a nice body of research that has used the um, olfactory bulbs, so that part of the brain processing essentially olfactory information. So um, and this has been used as a proxy, or their size, their shape, or um, their volume has been used as a proxy for olfactory abilities across many animal taxa, um, including fishes. 
So that was the starting point, his, which was also a research area of my co-supervisor, um, Cara. She had extensively compared the size of these bulbs across many, many shark species and rays and even chimeras. And so the question was, okay, this has been accepted as one way of comparing across fishes, but do we know what it means? Because it's one thing to have a bigger brain structure, but if inside you don't have as many neurons because they're less densely packed, then maybe your processing power is not as great. And so the size might not reveal you what you actually want to test, you know? So that was one of the biggest questions we wanted to start with. So in trying to answer it, I came across a new technique to visualize brains. So MRI, same as for us humans, is one way to do it if you want to um, calculate the volume of a brain area. And it can be a very expensive technique if you have a lot of specimen to go through and not as handy because, yeah, the training and the access to the hospital is a limitation, obviously. So we came across um, that new technique um, using CT. So it's the same as a CT scan, same as humans or akin veterinary science, same kind of apparatus, but quite uh, for smaller samples, so really high resolution. But it had never been used, that imaging tool, to that application. So that was another thing. Let's try to use something new and see if we can get an answer, which we did. Right. So what, yeah, and then what did you find? So what we found is that, to put it in a nutshell, the volume of um, the olfactory bulb was assessed using that technique successfully. So that was one win. Then we compared the olfactory bulb size across, well, two main representative fish species. So one cartilaginous, a a cat shark. And and cartilaginous fish are um, fish-like sharks that have, they don't have bones. They have cartilage, right? More or less, yeah. They make, their skeleton is mainly cartilage compared to bony fishes. And when we say cartilaginous fishes, also just a precision for those that might be listening and not in that um, field of research, we mean um, shark skates and rays. They call the lasmobranchs, but there is also chimeras. And all of that are cartilaginous fishes. So right. coming back to your question, um, the main founding is that, yeah, we use that new, that novel imaging tool to get, the volume of the bulbs in the two representative species. But then we used another microscopy technique to get the number of neurons entering the olfactory bulb and exiting. So we could actually test if whether or not the volume was meaning something. And we did. We actually found that uh, in the cartilaginous species, there was much more neurons entering the olfactory bulb and they were packed the same as in the bony um, species, the bony fish species. So we could tell that based on how they are compacted or the, how dense they are, which was exactly the same between the, sense, this, the two different species, it was just based on a difference of neuron entering that brain area that, that explained how the olfactory bulb was bigger. So Victoria, as a uh, shark biologist, what, what is one way, I guess, you know, sharks cop a lot of flack for um, being man-eaters, but, you know, what is, what is one thing that you want people to understand um, better about the nature of sharks? Uh, the, answer, the first answer that comes to my mind is part of your question is just to better understand them and to seek answers for things you, you believe 
about them, um, they, they're not that well understood. And, and to be honest, even with the research conducted so far, we certainly know more. But even everything that I said to you today in our session, um, I can't blunt, I can't answer if yes or no, they are that good at smelling compared to other animals, you know. So I think there is a really a call to better understand them or try to, and, and to better protect and conserve them then. Um, because there is no way you can tackle big question as sustainable human-animal interaction if you don't understand the subject, and that's both ways. So we have a lot of information for the human side of the story, but for the animal side of the story, there is a lot to answer. So generally understanding more about their ecology or ways to reduce their captures in fisheries, which is their, their highest threat today, or just how how they are the awesome animals that they evolved to be throughout million years. Um, yeah, it's probably my only take on message today. Um, well, Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash, uh, fish biologist, um, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today. Thank you so much for sharing your passion and your research into shark biology. And I'm certainly going to think differently next time I see sharks either diving or at the aquarium. Absolutely. I'm going to wonder a little bit more about their brain morphology and what they can smell right now. Thank you for having me again. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.